Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. It is my great privilege to welcome back to Talk Nation Radio this week, Lindsay Koshgarian, who is the program director of the National Priorities Project, where she oversees nationalpriorities.org. Lindsay's work on the federal budget includes analysis of the federal budget process and politics, military spending, and specifically how federal budget choices for different spending priorities and taxation interact. Lindsay Koshgarian, welcome back to Talk Nation Radio. Thanks, David. Glad to be here. Glad you're here. Glad you're doing the work you are. Uh, when politicians propose to spend money on anything other than militarism, they are immediately asked, but how would you pay for it? What do they usually reply, and what do you think they should try replying instead? Uh, that's right. When we When you hear people suggest um, really big, bold programs like Medicare for All or a Green New Deal, or even when people suggest not cutting um, programs that we already have, um, from a, there's a large part of the political spectrum where you get the answer, um, we can't afford that. You know, the deficit is too big. Um, even, you know, even on, on the supposed left, many Democrats, you know, when you talk about the really big programs like Medicare for All, we'll say that we can't afford it. That's pie in the sky. Um, and so, you know, they'll talk about things like the deficit. Um, that's a that's a big sort of um, a big uh, boogeyman when it comes to, to talking about what we can afford. Um, but what they should talk about is where we're spending our money now, uh, and and the fact that these are choices that we've made. And there are choices that in many cases have not worked to our advantage as a nation in terms of our uh, national security or in terms of um, people's well-being and that we can make different choices in the future. So, you know, I'd like to hear more of our leaders talking about the fact that, you know, we're on the hook for $6 trillion for our wars over the past 20 years and talk about what else we could have done with that money. Um, for example, if we put that money into a renewable energy electric grid, we would have one by now, and we'd have about a trillion and a half dollars to spare. I, I have a question, uh, sort of maybe coming from the opposite angle of what you're thinking on the on the six trillion dollar figure for wars. I mean, everybody likes to pick some little fraction of military spending and say that's the price of the wars. But then what, I wonder, is the rest of military spending? Isn't it all for wars and preparations for wars? Can't we take one and a quarter trillion a year, multiply it by the number of years, and that's more or less what we've been spending for wars? That's true. Although some of that, I think, it's important to sort of talk about which parts of that are really optional. Um, you know, the United States is not about to become a country with no military. So I think it's best to talk in terms of you know, what we could and should cut. Um, and I don't mean in a narrow sense of what's politically feasible right now. Um, I mean in a, in a broader sense of if you really look at, um, at what a reasonable military for a nation this size would be, um, even, you know, even if we just had a military that looked more like the militaries of other countries, um, you know, for the size of our country, what would that look like? Um, and, 
by making those kind of comparisons, you can really get a wide range of people who can see that the amount that we're spending right now um, is just crazy. Um, and I don't know if, you know, if you tell people it's $6 trillion versus $12 trillion, I think once, once we get into the trillions, most of us kind of lose track of what we're really talking about, just a number that we don't deal with on a day-to-day basis. And it's hard to understand what it, what it means, even. Um, uh-huh. And I think it's good for people to understand, uh, to think about the wars that we're fighting specifically, um, not just the potential wars that we're planning for, because the wars we're fighting specifically are wars that are still deeply unpopular, that people know we shouldn't be fighting. Uh, and it's good to remind them of that, that it's not, you know, we're not fighting some noble wars or some wars that were necessary for our safety. These are wars of choice, uh, and they're wars where the United States is not necessarily in the right. Uh, absolutely, and very, very good to remind people of that. Uh, and and it, uh, just on, on the question of Medicare uh, for all or health care in general, it, it also seems to me worth reminding people whenever they ask, how do you pay for that, that the United States actually needs to pay less for health care, not more than it's paying now. It just needs to pay it in a different way. So you don't actually need to cut anything for health care. And you could take all this unfathomable money from militarism or 10% of it or 50% of it or whatever and put it into other things like a Green New Deal, right? That's absolutely right. All of the uh, all of the comprehensive Medicare for all proposals involve cost-saving measures and cost control that would make a Medicare for all system ensure more people and at the same time cost less than the system that we have now. Um, so you don't need to raise a bunch of new taxes or you don't need to um, you don't need to cut a bunch of spending elsewhere in the government. All you need to do is shift around the money that's currently in the health care system. Um, but yeah, there are things that we that we do need money for. We do, we need money for you know, a renewable energy electric grid. We need money to you know develop and encourage um, the purchase of of clean cars. We need money to um, to do all sorts of you know, the full range of things that we need to do to address climate change um, is very expensive, and you know it, it runs into the trillions of dollars and. It's important that, you know, we know that by cutting the military budget and a combination of that and raising taxes on the wealthy and corporations, that we can raise the money that we need. Uh, Absolutely. And so if you were to start moving money out of militarism and into human needs and environmental needs, uh, where would you start? What are some bits of, of military spending that you would go after first? Well, the, the biggest one I think that people are used to hearing about is, of course, ending the wars. But in terms of dollars, the actually the biggest cut that we recommend is a serious assessment of U.S. foreign military installations uh, around the world. We have 800 military installations outside of the United States. No other country has, comes even close. We have more than 90% of the world's foreign military installations. And... You know, they're in places like Aruba and Djibouti and, you know, little, little, what are called lily pad, small operations, you know, across Africa and, um, and all over the world. Uh, and many of them reflect our military history. So we still have tens of thousands of troops in Germany and in Italy and in 
South Korea and in Japan. And these are just places where we fought wars and never left. That's really all it is. It's not, we didn't make a strategic decision 10 years ago that these are the places that we needed to be for our national security. It's just that once the United States sets down a military base, we keep it. Uh, and it's easy to see similar things happening in the Middle East right now. And you know, if you imagine sort of, you know, 75 years on from the conflict uh, in Afghanistan and Iraq from the beginnings of those wars, you know, if we're still keeping troops in those places, we will have really um, wasted a lot of resources and um, wasted a lot of important human resources, right? We're, you know, sending tens of thousands of troops to places where we don't need them and, you know, putting strain and stress on their families for these deployments. And, you know, and it's a tremendous cost, tremendous cost, and it's a tremendous hardship for military families. And we don't need to be doing it just to keep bases uh, because we already have them. And, and your estimate is a savings of $90 billion by closing half of them. Is that right? We're, we're suggesting an evaluation in closing more than half of them, about 60%, which would still, um, I would point out, leave us with 300 military installations around the world, which is probably still too many. Um, but, you know, 60% seems like a pretty uh, ambitious goal for us for now. Well, the, the wonderful thing about, you know, any sort of cuts like these is that they could spark a reverse arms race, right? When the U.S. has spent less on militarism, other countries have too. And when it spends more, they spend more. So that, uh, so that once we've cut some of these items, 60%, uh, changes in the world may make it look reasonable to cut some more, right? That's absolutely right. These are bases... Um become a reason for other countries to, to spend more, um, for countries that are adversaries of ours to spend more on their militaries. And as you said, then it becomes an arms race. It, it becomes sort of a spiral. Um, if you imagine if, the, you know, if China were to open a military base, you know, in, in the Caribbean, for instance, imagine what the American response would be. We would, you know, we would start arming up. We would send troops you know, closer to, you know, to Florida and to uh, parts of the, the Gulf, we would send, um, you know, we would open more bases, we would increase our military spending in response to that. And other countries are doing just the same thing. We are speaking with Lindsay Koshgarian, who is Program Director of the National Priorities Project, see nationalpriorities.org. Uh, another item that you uh, list, among others, uh, to, to move money out of in the military is U.S. funding of other countries' militaries, <laughs> which, which you actually point out uh, in, in a recent uh, article is five times the budget of the United Nations is the amount of money the U.S. is spending on other countries' militaries. Is that right? That's, that is right. Unfortunately, that, that is right. We are spending far more to fund foreign militaries than the entire United Nations budget. Um, and, you know, what, think what you want of the United Nations and its effectiveness, but, you know, its sort of role, uh, its ostensible role as a peacekeeper between nations versus, you know, the obvious role of militaries as a maker of war um, really does kind of show where our priorities are and how we think we should relate to the world. 
um, if we put far more resources into true diplomacy and into humanitarian aid um, and development efforts um, in collaboration with other countries, a lot of that military spending would become even more unnecessary. Um, And so we're really spending the money in the most ineffective way um, for what we say is our goal, which is national security. Uh, another item uh, on your list, a uh, number of times bigger than that one even, uh, is uh, apparently aimed at uh, absolute apocalypse uh, for the Earth, which is presumably not anybody's uh, top priority, but, but nuclear weapons. Uh, how much can be saved there? Well, if we cancel the nuclear so-called modernization um, basically the sort of next generation of, of nuclear um, weapon weaponry and nuclear um, and and ways to deploy nuclear weapons. If we canceled just the modernization, we could save about twenty billion dollars a year. That mo- that is supposed to cost us a trillion dollars over the next thirty years. So that's a big amount of money just if we stayed where we are now in terms of our of our nuclear arsenal. But we're suggesting that we go even further. And we're suggesting that it's long past time that the United States got serious about a nuclear weapons ban. Um, and this is something that, you know, is, is not talked about enough. It's something that, you know, uh, flies in the face of the current administration's um, leaning, which is to build up an even bigger nuclear arsenal. Uh, but we've already signed on to bans for chemical weapons and biological weapons. We don't say that just because other countries might have them, we need to have them too. So we need to really take a look at our at our nuclear policy. And we've had success before in the past with treaties in making major reductions in the number of nuclear weapons that we hold and that other countries hold. And we need to get back to that work of, of building treaties and building a worldwide agreement that nuclear weapons can never be used, and so we don't need to have them. And, and that could save perhaps $43 billion a year? Put together, that would save about $43 billion a year. And and there is actually uh, legislation in the U.S. Congress, if I'm not mistaken, that would go some part of the way towards that end. Uh, Ed Markey, I think, has a bill. Eleanor Holmes yeah. Norton has her annual bill on, on moving money out of nukes. And, and there are even measures in the House version of the National Defense Authorization Act uh, opposing the, the modernization of the nukes, correct? That's right. Yeah. So there's uh, annual bill is right. There are a few of these that have been around for a long time, but, um, you know, if there were the right sort of will and energy put into them, I don't, don't, I don't just mean on the, on behalf of members of Congress. I mean, on behalf of, um, of constituents of members of Congress, yeah. you know, if they start hearing from their constituents, they will, they will make this a priority. Um, so yes, there is legislation that has been circulating for a long time and very importantly, um, there is language in the current House version of uh, the military appropriations and and um, authorization, which is how they fund the military, um, that would prohibit spending on uh, a, a low-yield nuclear weapon. These are supposed to be smaller nuclear weapons um, that are therefore supposed to be more usable, and that should 
terrify people to think that we are trying to build nuclear weapons that we might actually use. So it's a very, very good thing that the House version of these bills um, prohibits that spending. And um, this is an action item where this, you know, this is happening right now in Congress. These decisions are being made. So um, that would be an important thing for, for people to call their members of Congress about and insist that they keep that language in the military appropriation. And and when they say smaller nuclear weapons, they mean smaller than some of the other ones they've got, yet still many times larger than what was used on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which is the only experience people have of them being used on places, right? That's right. And many, many times larger than even the biggest conventional weapons. Um, so these are these are not weapons that are usable in any sense. Right. Um, and it's it's very dangerous that this is the direction that the military wants to head. Um, just to run through a few more of the items that would still leave the world's most massive uh, military uh, in place, uh, one item you've you've listed is the is the famous F thirty five. That should be cut, huh? Yes, the F thirty five should be cut, and lots of people know this. Um, you know, this is something that um, you know deceased Senator John McCain, who was a big champion of the military, and and always wanted bigger military budgets, but even he said he called the F-35 a scandal on a tragedy. Um, this is a plane that um, the Government Accounting Office has found more than 900 faults. Some of them are serious safety faults for the pilots. Um, it's a plane that, you know, is anything better than the planes we already have. Um, it's so much more complicated, and it's you know, so much more problematic that the military would really be better off sticking with the older generation fighter planes that are more reliable and can do everything that we could conceivably need them to do. <laughs> so it doesn't even serve a purpose for the U.S. military, but it makes certain people rich. And as you noted, it costs more each year just for this particular airplane than the entire military budget of the nation of Iran. Is that right? That is right. And that... Um, we're, we're, we spend about uh, 10 to $15 billion a year on S-35 in terms of building new ones and running the program for the ones that we have now. That is bigger than the entire military budget of Iran. Um, so it's, you know, it's really, it's partly a vanity project. And as you said, it is a project to make some people exceedingly, exceedingly rich. Um, Lockheed Martin is, um, is, the amount of money that they get in federal contracts is larger than most government agencies get as their entire budget. Um, and the CEO of Lockheed Martin has visited the White House more times in this administration than the president of Mexico. Um, so it's very much about the contractors, and it's very much about the parochial interests. Um, Lockheed has been very smart. They have spread the jobs and building little parts of the F-35 across 46 states, the more than 300 congressional districts. So they're able to go into the office, you know, their army of lobbyists is able to go into the offices of hundreds of members of Congress and tell them that jobs in their districts depend on this program. That's a very powerful thing. Um, so part of what we need to do is make the case that we can create more and better jobs in those same districts by shifting spending to something like clean energy or to healthcare, um, both of which can create more jobs for the same dollars compared to military spending. 
Yeah, and the the studies on that out of University of Massachusetts Amherst that have said you get more jobs and better paying jobs and better economic impact from the jobs if you spend the money in any other way or even don't tax it in the first place. I, I've I've never seen any anyone dispute those. I've also never seen them mentioned on U.S. television. No, they don't. They don't get mentioned enough. I think they're well known among activists, but yes, uh, but they are probably not well known enough certainly among the general public, but probably not well-known enough among members of Congress either. Um, so there's there's a lot of work there to be done, um, and it's important that we recognize that we can't just take those jobs away. You know, these are real people who, real livelihoods, who have bills to pay and, you know, rent and mortgages just like the rest of us. Um, so we have to replace those jobs if we're, if we're going to realistically be able to cut this program. But proposals and studies of such a conversion have typically found that the savings would be so great that you could aid and assist and re-educate and retrain. Every, so nobody would have to be hurt whatsoever, right? Yeah, we yeah we can. I mean, we can a bigger number of jobs. It would save enough money. There would be enough left over um, to help with with transitions. Um, we think that it would be an important part of of making this sort of war economy to a peace economy transition would be, you know, making that transition as smooth as possible for as many people as possible. Um, So that, you know, people, it's not a major reshuffling of people around the country. We can create jobs in many of the same places where they are now. We can have jobs where people can use many of the same skills that they're using now. Um, And, it's a really important part of this in order to make it possible um, and in order to, you know, do it without harming people that, that we just be careful about how we do it. Um, but that doesn't mean that we should just keep this, this complete failure of a program going. Um, you know, if you said that you wanted to do any other, you know, public works projects just for the sake of jobs, um, you wouldn't get very far with trying to fund that in Congress. Right. You know, another thing that is well known among activists, if not the general public, uh, is the the wonderful pie charts that uh, National Priorities Project has produced over the years of federal budgets and the federal discretionary budget uh, and so forth. And and there's always that 50 or 60 percent that's going to militarism and then everything else in those little teeny slices of the pie. And I've never seen a candidate for public office, uh, for president in particular, but for Congress or anything else, produce what they think the budget should be. What What is your ideal federal discretionary budget? How much should go where? Seems like the fir- very first question that any, you know, debate or town hall or interview would ask a candidate for U.S. president. And I, I'm very hopeful that you will correct me here, but I, I'm unaware of any candidate for U.S. president ever having been asked that question, even a basic outline. What do you think the federal budget should look like? Has anyone ever been asked it or answered it? Uh, well, I, I mean, I can't answer that definitively, but I, I, off the top of my head, I can't think of any instance um, where I've seen that question asked in that way. They, you know, questions tend to be asked piecemeal. What would you do about Iraq? What would you do about health care? What would you do about you know, yeah. one thing or another? But there's, there's, there really aren't questions that sort of ask candidates to put it all together. 
I, I asked candidate uh, Mike Gravel uh, to do that, and he thought it was a wonderful idea. He's going to do it, and then he dropped out before he did it. Uh, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, any of the candidates, why wouldn't it be, they, they put out all these proposals every week, why wouldn't it be a wonderful thing for one of them to put out a proposed uh, federal budget? Uh, and And wouldn't other candidates have to follow suit, and wouldn't uh, the corporate media have to notice? I, I think this is a wonderful idea. You know, presidents put out budgets even though they don't end up being the budget that the nation takes up. You know, presidents put out a budget, and Congress take up the president's budget and make up their own. Right. Um, but sometimes, you know, take some of the, of the president's budget um, priorities and suggestions. Um, and so if presidents have to do it, I think it makes absolute sense that candidates should have to do it. We should have to know, you know, whoever takes office or, or stays in office um, in 2021, in you know, February of 2021, that person will be putting out a president's budget. And it makes sense that before we choose who that person is, we should know what that budget should look like. Right. And then they can answer the but how do you pay for it question with take a look at my budget. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's right, which is also something they tend to do piecemeal. We're going to pay with for this program with this tax, and we're going to pay for this program with this thing. But it's true, we never get a sense of, of the big picture. Right, and as soon as they say with this tax, there's nothing but screaming headlines about raising taxes, uh, <laughs> which is, which is no matter how many details they add about, but you wouldn't pay the tax, it's tax, tax, tax! Whereas, take a look at my budget, we're moving money from things people don't like to things pe people do like. It, it seems a, politically as well as morally and economically a better answer, right? Yeah, I would, I would think so. I would hope so. Um, one thing that um, we're part of a National Priorities Project, it's part of a coalition called People Over Pentagon that um, has written an, a letter, and you can, you can see it at the website, peopleoverpentagon.org has written a letter to every presidential campaign um, telling them that, asking them to support a plan to cut $200 billion from the Pentagon budget. And, you know, our plan at National Priorities Project is, has higher than that, but we would certainly support a $200 billion a year cut um, to cut that much from the Pentagon budget and move it into other priorities. And it's a coalition of environmental groups and immigrant rights groups and other progressive organizations um, and so we haven't specified what that money should pay for because it, we'd be happy if it paid for any of those other priorities. Um, and so far, you know, every candidate has received a letter. And so far, six or seven candidates have, have taken up the group on um, being briefed on this idea. Um, and so six, you know, there have been six or seven campaigns so far that we've briefed uh, on this idea. And we are hoping to see some of the candidates uh, all of the candidates would be ideal, but some of the candidates come out with their own plan uh, for how they would do that. And and none of them have yet? Not yet. Um, yeah, I, I had staffers for Senator Sanders tell me months ago that they were going to. Uh, and so I'm very hopeful that at some point that will happen. Uh, I, I'm afraid we have less than a, a minute left. Lindsay Koshkarian from National Priorities Project. Tell people how they can follow up and learn more and uh, be involved. Um, you can find our recommend recommendations for Pentagon spending and, and other uh, analysis at our website, nationalpriorities.org, um, where you can also sign up for our email list to get notifications of our, our new work um, and when, when we have something in the media or when we release a new report. 
Um, and you'll also get occasional action requests to, to call your members of Congress. Uh, wonderful. We have been speaking with Lindsay Koshkarian from the National Priorities Project. If you don't regularly visit nationalpriorities.org, you should start doing so. Lindsay, thanks for coming on Talk Nation Radio. Thanks for having me, David. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. All past shows can be heard at davidswanson.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a nonprofit station, please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is funded by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.